0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good evening. Uh, Welcome to the the CAPS Forum on Ethics. Uh, My name is uh, Greg Jarrett. I represent the Walter H. CAPS Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life. If you don't know about us, we have a three-part mission. Part of our mission is to teach ethics on campus. That's the only reason I get invited to these things, because that's what I do. Um, Another very important part of our mission is to prepare promising students for careers in the public service uh, by training and placing them in uh, internships with NGOs and with local, state, and federal government agencies And a third very important part of our mission is to bring in distinguished speakers to to the campus and to the community to help raise the level of conversation on matters of deep moral significance. Today we have a number of participating classes I'd like to thank. Um, Go ahead and let us know that you're here. Um, We have Bob Wilkinson's uh, class on sustainable communities. Let us know if you're here. Uh, we have, no booing, um, we have Dr. McCartney's uh, class on global economic development. Are you here? Smaller group. We have Global Studies One. And a little smaller. And we have my own class in environmental ethics. Uh, I can only downgrade you a little. Okay. Um, Tonight's speaker is a journalist, an entrepreneur, a visionary author, and a self-proclaimed capitalist. Peter Barnes began his career as a reporter for the Lowell Sun in Massachusetts. He subsequently became a Washington correspondent for Newsweek magazine, and later a West Coast correspondent for the New Republic. As an entrepreneur, Mr. Barnes co-founded a solar company in San Francisco back in 1976. He later founded Working Assets Money Fund and the Credo Action Network, which jointly raised more than $76 million for groups like Oxfam, Doctors Without Borders, the Rainforest Action Network, Democracy Now!, the Brennan Center for Justice, Planned Parenthood, Bill McKibben's 350.org, and hundreds of other nonprofits. In 1995, Mr. Barnes was named Socially Responsible Entrepreneur of the Year for Northern California. His books include the 2001 Who Owns the Sky? It's 2006 Capitalism 3.0, and his latest book With Liberty and Dividends for All. This book is available uh, in the back uh, for a signing after the event uh, um, tonight. He will s- speak to us about fixing capitalism's deepest flaws. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Peter Barnes.
0: Thank you very much, Greg, and thanks to oh, Bob Wilkinson, John Steele, and everybody else at the uh, CAP Center for inviting me here tonight. And thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to talk about capitalism tonight. I should say, in, in reference to uh, <laughs> what Greg just said about me, that I'm a self-proclaimed capitalist. Uh, There was a period in my life where I preferred describing myself as a socialist entrepreneur. At this point in my life, though, I am comfortable calling myself a capitalist, but only within the context you should be clear that that I think capitalism needs to be fundamentally fixed, and I prefer fixing it to destroying it. I think it can be fixed, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Anyway, let me just start by telling a little bit about my experience with capitalism. It actually started when I was 10 years old, and my father, who was an economist, uh, hired me to crunch numbers for a book that he was writing about the stock market. And I used an old Frieden mechanical calculator which uh, probably not too many of you know was was it was a was a device that actually put the crunch in number crunching i had no idea at that time what the numbers meant but i really enjoyed crunching them so thinking that i had some aptitude with numbers i decided to major in math in college big mistake it was way over my head, so I wound up majoring in history, and, and as Greg mentioned, I became a journalist uh, for 13 years after I graduated college. Then in my 30s, this is when I kind of decided to become a, an entrepreneur. I had a midlife crisis, and and I just decided that I wanted, that I'd written enough and I wanted to actually get engaged and do something. So I did start this worker owned solar energy business in the 1970s that uh, Greg mentioned in San Francisco. Bear in mind that at this time there was no solar industry. I didn't know anything about solar energy, and I didn't know anything about running a business. But fortunately, uh, a man named David Olson, who is here in the audience tonight, uh, an old friend of mine who went on to become CEO of Patagonia, uh, ran at that time a little school called the New School for Democratic Management, which specialized in taking young idealists and in about four weeks turning them into business people. So I went to this school and got my sort of pseudo-MBA there, and went on to run this, uh, this solar company for about six years until Reagan abolished the tax incentives for solar. And that uh, led me to other ventures, including working assets. Um, so all in all, I spent 20 years in the, in the belly of the beast, so to speak, um, starting companies, taking ideas and turning them into businesses, and the reason I did this, believe it or not, was not to get rich, but to learn from the inside how capitalism worked, and more importantly, how far its boundaries could be pushed. What, how, you know, could we make workers owners? Could we? protect the environment instead of destroying it. This this is what I wanted to find out. And during these 20 years, I did test a, a variety of alternatives to sort of standard capitalism, including worker ownership, socially responsible investing, and what might be called socially responsible spending. Eventually, I concluded that none of these alternatives or even all of them put together, uh, can save us from capitalism's two tragic flaws. Now, capitalism has a lot of flaws. Some are big, some are small. Uh, But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of honed in on what the two most tragic flaws are, and they, those are the relentless destruction of nature and the equally relentless widening of inequality. These flaws are coded into the system. If we want to change them, we have to change the system itself. And, and that it's not enough to fiddle at the edges and we don't really have any time left to fiddle at the edges we have to get to the fundamental systemic roots of these flaws and and fix them so how can we do that that is what I'm going to talk about tonight and Just to give you a little uh, advance notice, I'm actually not going to talk all that long. I'll probably talk for 30 minutes or so. My purpose is to leave a lot of time for questions and answers. So get ready to ask hard and challenging questions. So where to start about the flaws and how to fix them? One place we could start is with Garrett Hardin, who is a well-known ecologist uh, who taught here at at, uh, UCSB for many years, and was the author of the famous 1968 essay, The Tragedy of the Commons. Hardin's basic argument was that commons are inherently self-destructive because it's in everybody's self-interest to use them and no one's self-interest to preserve them. Um, I'm going to flip Hardin on his head, actually, and argue that the commons is not the perpetrator of tragedy, but rather the victim and that capitalism's tragic flaws are the actual perpetrators, and that the commons, or what I now prefer to call common wealth, and I'll get into that a little later, is actually a key part of the solution to the flaws of capitalism. In fact, to fix the deepest flaws of capitalism, we need to reclaim the commons. And by that I mean we need to organize and manage the commons or our commonwealth on the basis of common ownership, common trusteeship, and common benefit. So let me talk a little bit about tragedy. In Greek mythology and drama, every hero has a tragic flaw. Typically, the tragic flaw is an outgrowth of what makes the character heroic. In individuals, it's often hubris. If we extend the concept of tragic flaws uh, from individuals to social or economic systems, we can say that a tragic flaw of a system is a rule or an algorithm which, while designed to do good, eventually winds up doing harm and possibly even causing the system to crash. If the, Even if the system becomes aware of the harm caused by the tragic flaw, it goes on doing it. That's what really makes the flaw tragic. It's the persistence in the face of of clear harm being done. Now, in economics, if some of you have studied it, as I'm sure you have, the the kind of closest uh, term to tragic flaw is market failure. Have you heard that term? Yeah, okay. Uh, Market failure occurs when the market doesn't recognize stakeholders such as nature, workers, communities, future generations, or as I would argue all of us together as co-inheritors and co-trustees of our society and our planet. When the market doesn't recognize stakeholders when they have, when these stakeholders have no agents in the market, uh, the price for screwing them, to use a fancy term, is exactly zero. If you don't have anybody representing you, you get screwed. And corporations, who obviously are powerful agents in the market, Uh, pay no attention to these unrepresented stakeholders. And that, as has been pointed out by many people, is what causes, for example, climate change. And it's also what causes the, 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 the widening of inequality. Let me talk very briefly about these two flaws, just so we know what we're talking about here. Uh, Climate change, as the British economist Lord Stern said in a famous report a couple of years ago, is the greatest market failure ever. The reason we keep burning fossil fuels and dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is that uh, nobody owns the atmosphere and, and nobody represents it in the marketplace. Um, That's pretty obvious, so I won't dwell on that. What I uh, will add to that, though, is that inequality is also a market failure, as many people, including uh, most recently the French economist Thomas Piketty, have pointed out. Piketty's argument, and he showed this with all sorts of data, is that Under capitalism, as we know it, capital grows faster than everything else. It just does. It it sucks up wealth. And this goes on generation after generation because capital is passed on uh, from one generation to the next, and it just continues to concentrate. Um, There are a lot of reasons for this, uh, which I do get into in my book, but I'll leap over here for the moment in the interest of time. So, okay, here we have these two big flaws of capitalism. They go on and on, you know, no matter what we do. Uh, both the destruction of nature and inequality get worse and worse. And now I'm saying that somehow we can fix both of these flaws by reorganizing common So how can that be? How can that happen? It's actually simple, I think, although it's simple in theory. The politics of it is not so simple. That's another discussion. But I am going to talk about the theory tonight first, and we can get into politics later if you want. So first, though, what is commonwealth? What do I mean by that? Um, What I mean by that is a lot of stuff that is all around us that we don't usually see, that isn't created by any of us individually or even by corporations as businesses, but comes to us uh, either from the creation, from our ancestors who built things which we have inherited, uh, from our collective efforts uh, to build things like infrastructure and the internet and so forth and our financial system. Um, so all of these things are either gifted to us or co-created by us and our ancestors. They, they aren't really private. Therefore, they're common. Um, and there's one other element of... Commonwealth that I would like to throw into this pot, which is the value that the system by itself, or a system by itself, a complex system, creates. And if you've studied systems theory, uh, you know that um, there's kind of an emergent property or emergent value that comes out of a system that is greater than the sum of the value of the system's parts. I mean, this happens all over, but just think for, for a simple example of, uh, of what would happen if, our, if the internet crashed or our power system or our monetary system crashed. The parts of these systems, which maybe were built by individuals or corporations, would have little value on their own it's the whole that creates most of the value of the parts. And I would argue that that extra value created by the whole, as opposed to the individuals or the businesses that are the parts, that that extra value is also part of commonwealth, belongs to everybody, not just to corporations or private individuals. So all of this is a lot of wealth. It's it's a huge amount of wealth, hugely valuable, but the trouble is that the market doesn't see it at all. It's like the dark matter of the economic universe. It's everywhere, but we don't see it. And that's what needs to change. We need to make invisible commonwealth visible so that the invisible hand of the market can take it seriously can respect it and treat it with respect the way the market ought to see our commonwealth is as wealth that is held in trust for future generations other species when appropriate and all living persons equally or as the legal scholar carol rose once put it, as property on the outside and commons on the inside. For this to happen, commonwealth needs to be embodied in legal entities that the market can see and respect. The market has very limited vision. It sees prices, it sees property rights, it sees laws, and that's about it. So uh, The Commonwealth must be embedded, embodied in in legal entities, which from the outside look like, they might actually look a little like corporations, but inwardly they're coded differently. They're coded to protect their assets for future generations, not to just maximize short-term profit, and to share current income, if there is any, equally amongst all the owners. In the book I wrote several years ago called Capitalism 3.0, I call this process of legally embodying commonwealth, propertization of commonwealth. It's not the most felicitous term, but I, let me explain what it means. First of all, it's not to be confused with privatization, which means propertizing commonwealth so that it becomes private property. There are ways to propertize commonwealth that keep it as common property and and protect it from private takeover. For example, land trusts, community land trusts do that. So that's the model that I'm talking about. And my big argument is that propertization of commonwealth in this fashion, if done to scale can fix both of the tragic flaws of capitalism that I mentioned earlier. So let's walk through that and see how that might work. Okay, uh, flaw number one, destruction of nature. Current price for nature today is exactly zero. Hence, destruction rolls on. The solution, as every economist knows, is to internalize externalities, to make polluters and depleters pay today. And to do that, the market must tell large commercial entities no externalization without compensation. So the question is how to do that efficiently and economy-wide. And propertizing common wealth gives us a way to do that. Right now, these externalities are invisible because there are no agents, there are no economic actors that turn them into prices that corporations have to pay. But suppose there were. Suppose the markets were populated with uh, what we might generically call common wealth trusts. These trusts would would represent legally uh, some of these stakeholders that are not now represented. Um, Unlike corporations, which represent just the interests of shareholders, these trusts would represent a combination of nature, future generations, and members of society as a whole. If the market were populated by entities such as this, corporations couldn't just shift costs and pay nothing. They'd have to bargain in real time with representatives of nature, future generations, and members of society all together. No externalization without compensation would become the rule. This would affect prices throughout the economy, and in the process, instead of being encouraged to externalize more, corporations would be forced to externalize less. So that would fix, if it were done to scale, uh, the first tragic flaw. There are other ways that have been talked about to fix that flaw, such as taxes, green taxes, Pigovian taxes. Those would have to be set by government, and my problem with that approach, aside from the fact that it has been out there for a hundred years and hasn't. Really happened is that government itself is part of the problem. Not in the way Reagan meant, but in the sense that government is not really going to represent these stakeholders because government today, unfortunately, is under the sway of the big externalizers. So you have a real conflict of interest there. You need entities that are not amenable to being controlled by corporations that have other legal obligations to other stakeholders. Okay. The second tragic flaw, flaw inequality, how would this approach to commonwealth affect that? We know that wealth is constantly concentrating at the top, the top 1% or 1/10th of percent whatever it is. And The reason among several that that is the main reason that that is happening is that uh, the rich have these powerful agents on their side, namely corporations, and they also kind of have government as well on their side, while everyone else has either very weak or very disloyal or even no agents whatsoever on their side. And it's just a fact that in a competitive uh, economic system, wealth will flow disproportionately to those who have the strongest agents. But remember, when we were talking about flaw number one, those commonwealth trusts that uh, we ideally would create to solve the problem of externalities. Turns out those trusts could serve a second purpose which is to represent all living members of society in the marketplace. When corporations are are, are properly charged for using commonwealth, the trusts can distribute some or all of the proceeds to all members of the community equally. Again, if this were done at scale, uh, we would wind up with two parallel systems for distributing income one being the private property-based system that we have now, which, as we know, is inherently unequal, but alongside that would be another system that distributes wealth equally, income equally. That second system wouldn't eliminate inequality entirely, but the bigger it got, the more it would level things out. Let me say a couple of words at this point about my latest book, With Liberty and Dividends for All, which focuses on on the second tragic flaw, inequality, uh, much more than on the first one, uh, The Destruction of Nature. That I covered, actually, in Capitalism 3.0 and Who Owns the Sky. now become clear that we, we have a problem, a huge problem with inequality in America that uh, has to do with the fact that labor income has been going down pretty steadily since around 1980. Uh, both the median wage And the aggregate amount of labor income in the economy compared to the amount of non-labor income have been going down. And there are a number of sort of obvious uh, causes for this, globalization, automation, the decline of labor unions, uh, none of which are, you know, is there any end in sight of any of these things. And the net result is that there just aren't now, and are not going to be in the foreseeable future, enough good paying jobs to sustain a large middle class the way we have been accustomed to doing, or we were accustomed to doing in the post-World War II period. That sort of heyday of the middle class between around you know 1950 and 1980, uh, which was built on labor income, uh, was and we all those of us who grew up th- during that period assumed it was the new normal, and that our children would, would also grow up in that kind of economy and would probably be better off than w- we were, just as we were better off than our parents. Uh, That turned out not to be the case. Uh, That post-war period is looking more and more like a one-time historical fluke, which had something to do with the fact that after World War II, the U.S. was the only economy still standing, and, and for the next 30 years we were able to dominate the global economy. Our corporations very profitably exported everything to everybody. And we had strong unions that were able to get uh, a good share out of that uh, for workers. Anyway, those days are over, as I'm sure everybody here who's under 30 is is well aware. Uh, You know, back then you could get a job for General Motors or IBM and work there for 30 years and get good pay and benefits and the pension when you retired, and now, uh, you can't do that anymore. Uh, we have what some people have called a gig economy, right? You have one gig, another gig, and in between you drive Uber or something, just so you can pay the rent, or you rent out a room under Airbnb. There's no security uh, in any of this. this is, it is not possible to build a middle class uh, with this kind of labor market. You can't build it on labor income alone. So the point I make in this book is we have to see that these changes have occurred, and we have to adapt our thinking and our policies. And and where we really have to look, if we want to have a large middle class in America, is to some other source of income, not to replace labor income, but to supplement labor income. We need a stream, a reliable stream, of non-labor income that tops off what we're able to earn in the labor market and provides a kind of baseline, economic security for everybody. And there are two possible ways we might think about doing that. One is through taxes. You know, in theory, we could tax the rich and have some kind of uh, need-based way of, of uh, distributing some of that money to those who need it or to everybody. So that's one way, through taxes, redistribution. But there's also another way, and that's what I advocate in this book, and that other way is, is dividends from wealth that we all own together, from common wealth. And for reasons that you can understand from what I was saying earlier about the bigger picture, I think that way is the way to go. It makes a lot of sense, both economically and, just as important politically, within the political situation, and the political reality in which we live here in the United States. Um, the dividends that I talk about in this book would come from a nationwide fund, similar to the Alaska Permanent Fund. Have any of you heard of the Alaska Permanent Fund? Okay, not too many. Uh, It's it's kind of a pity, because we have this incredible example in the United States, admittedly it's in the far, far north, uh, of a fund that pays equal dividends to everyone in Alaska from commonwealth. In the case of Alaska, What they did was they took the oil that was discovered and developed in Alaska in the 1970s and 80s, took a percentage of the royalties from that, put it into essentially a mutual fund that every resident of Alaska was an equal shareholder of and still is. And that fund invested the money, and from the investments, earnings, it paid equal dividends to everybody in Alaska. It's been doing this now for 35 years. And the dividends have ranged from about $1,000 up to over $3,000 per person per year. So that includes children, and a family of four would get... uh, If it were $2,000 dividend, they'd get $8,000. And this has made a big difference in Alaska. Alaska is actually one of the states with the least inequality and the least amount of poverty. And a lot of it has to do with these dividends. But the important point here is that these dividends are not welfare, and they're not perceived as welfare in Alaska. They're perceived as legitimate property income. They were the the, the original sponsor of the permanent fund. The guy who invented it was a Republican governor named Jay Hammond. And every Republican and Democratic governor and most politicians from both parties in Alaska have been wildly supportive of this thing for the last 35 years, including Sarah Palin. I should just mention, as an aside, but it's relevant because of the politics, that in in 2008, when Sarah, before Sarah was picked as McCain's running mate, while she was still governor, the oil companies, oil prices were very high in 2008, and oil companies were making huge profits, and Sarah, bless her soul, said, there's something wrong about this. We should, raise, we should put an excess profits tax on the oil companies in Alaska and put the proceeds of that tax into the permanent fund and raise everybody's dividends. And she did that. Um, and during the campaign later, she was being interviewed on Fox News by Sean Hannity, who had done some research and he discovered this little socialist error on Sarah's part. And of course, he was appalled. And he asked her to justify it. And she gave a very good justification for it. Well, you know, she said, going round and round. You know, my job was to support the people, not the corporations, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, my point is that we have a precedent within the United States for dividends of this type. And what I'm proposing is to use that model to blow it up nationally and to use not oil, but a whole bunch of other common assets, propertized, monetized, uh, that would generate revenue that would go into this fund that would pay dividends. And those assets would include the atmosphere. uh, Polluters should pay us. That would be a major source of dividends. We'd get less pollution and more income, a good combination. Uh, The financial infrastructure of our country is another common asset that if we managed it properly, and I can explain some possible ways to do that later if you're interested. Uh, The airwaves, the electromagnetic spectrum is another common asset that is hugely valuable that we mostly give away for free, but don't have to. And another one that I uh, talk about in the book is the uh, intellectual property protection services, the copyrights and patents that we provide to big corporations that make them extremely profitable, but we don't charge anything for providing that huge benefit to quite a lot of corporations. If we did charge for that, uh, these, these four common assets that I've just mentioned, by themselves, I calculate, could generate up to about $5,000 per person per year on a national level. And this plan would be simple, it would be fair, it would be transparent, it would include everyone, it would be direct in the sense of it would not be trickled down. The problem with so many of the policies that politicians propose today is they're all sort of, well, if we do this, then this happens, and that happens, and then maybe there's more jobs, and then maybe some of that trickles down. But we don't have time to do all that stuff. You know, We need to get the money out directly. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna wrap up in one second and then have the Q&A, but I just wanna say one word before I do close, about the question of how any of this could actually happen. We all know that Washington today is dysfunctional. It's incapable of doing anything. So none of this is gonna happen in the short term. But let me quote the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman here. He said, only a crisis actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. If you've read Naomi uh, Klein, you're familiar with this idea of, of being ready to seize crises, opportunities in crises. We had a crisis in 2008, which was pretty big. We had a new president. We had democratic control in both houses of Congress, briefly. But we didn't. We wasted the crisis completely. Nothing came of it, uh, in part because we didn't have any ideas lying around. We really didn't know what to do, so we just kind of stuck the whole thing back together again and made the banks even bigger. We can't afford to waste another crisis. And surely there will be another one. Whether it's financial, whether it's a natural disaster, it's coming. So how do we prepare for the next crisis? Uh, There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Some of it is intellectual, some of it is political, uh, some of it is organizing. But the thought that I want to leave you with tonight is that we can all help prepare for the next crisis by spreading the idea of common wealth. Talk about it. Blog about it. Start saying things like, the air belongs to all of us. Or our money belongs to all of us. Our monetary system belongs to all of us, and they're taking it from us, and we have a right to take it back. So in other words start naming commonwealth and claiming it. If we do that I do think there's at least a chance that after the next crisis we can fix the tragic flaws of capitalism. Okay, thank you and
1: Thank you. Questions? Um, We have uh, plenty of time for questions. Um, Don't be afraid to ask your questions. Uh, I think there'll be time for everyone. I would like to request that we start off with students, undergraduate students, before Bren faculty start diving in. Um, Yes, and please, uh, we need uh, you to speak into the microphone when you ask a question. In the back, sir.
0: Um, Yeah,
2: first of all, uh, I really like your ideas. I really like what you're doing here. Um, But I couldn't help but notice a pretty fundamental conflict
0: between addressing uh, your two main flaws
1: in that um, (laughs) as as you're um, charging these companies to pollute, um, that would be, you know, the point would be to discourage them in doing that, and so over time, wouldn't that be decreasing uh, the dividends that are paid to the Commonwealth stakeholders?
0: Okay, good question. Um, The answer is a little counterintuitive, but think about it. Uh, When OPEC or any monopoly wants to increase its Revenue and profit, what does it do? It actually reduces the supply of whatever its product is. Prices go up, profits go up. Now that's on the capitalist side, but the same phenomenon can occur with commonwealth. If we limit the amount of pollution that we allow to go into the atmosphere, let's say by putting a, a cap on pollution and selling a declining number of permits. The price of the permits is set by supply and demand. And as the supply goes down, the price is going to go up. In fact, it'll go up quite a lot. So actually, the reverse of what you were just describing is what happens in the case of pollution that uh, uh, and other externalities. that. Uh, as we shrink the amount, the quantity, or the supply of the externalities, the price goes up and our dividends go up. So you actually have a a virtuous uh, feedback system rather than the opposite.
2: Um, Hi, thanks so much. I really appreciated your talk. Um, My question is, and I think Piketty also runs into this problem as well, of the difference, between the, the, sorry, the difference between the economic system and the political system. So do you see problems with the nation state system in the sense that the nation state system is designed to protect property, but what we've seen is that when we start taxing things like carbon, companies are actually able to outsource pollution or outsource inequality to other nation states where they wouldn't have necessarily these rules in place? Um, And so I was wondering if you kind of see the nation state as something that's holding progress on fixing capitalism back, and do you think your system could be either globalized or maybe even brought down to the very micro level, or do you think that we could just start at the nation state level and move from there?
0: Okay. Um, Another good question. I think the nation state is the best... Uh, tool we've got for solving these problems. Globally, it's very difficult. Uh, but one thing that can affect the, the other countries besides our nation state uh, is something called border adjustment fees. Let me explain that. Let's say we put a price on carbon within the United States. Uh, The fear is that, okay, as you were saying, we're just going to buy cheap goods from China or some other country that has a lower carbon price. Uh, The way we would prevent that from happening is to put uh, a fee at the border which says that if some product is coming from another country which doesn't have an equivalent carbon price to ours, we would charge a fee that makes up the difference. And that would have the effect of incenting this country, let's just call it China for sake of discussion. Um, China would soon realize that instead of having to pay this extra money to export stuff to the United States, it could raise its own domestic price of carbon and pay itself rather than pay us. It would be a smart thing for them to do. So even though we wouldn't have had, let's say, a treaty with China and all these other countries that established a kind of a uniform policy for reducing carbon worldwide, we would get the same effect in the end, kind of using market forces. So that's one, that's a partial answer to your question. I think the nation state is our best tool at the moment.
2: Um, you said that the the trusts, the commonwealth trusts would look like companies from the outside but not on the inside. How would you prevent them from, or how would you keep them accountable and non-corrupted? Like, how would you keep the propertized not, a, be, keep it away from being privatized?
0: Another darn good question. Um, there's always a threat that any institution can can be corrupted, but the mechanism that ideally would be used by these trusts. Okay, trusts themselves as a legal form have been around for hundreds of years, and their purpose is to protect helpless beneficiaries. Uh, that's maybe not the best word, but you know, if you wanted to to set up a way to uh, pay for your child's education or grandchild's education, you would set up a trust, and there would be a trustee, maybe a bank, that whose legal fiduciary duty would be to manage those assets on behalf of the beneficiary, your grandchild. And there are laws that you know enforce that sort of behavior, um, just the way there are with corporations, where a, a director of a corporation has a f- legal fiduciary responsibility to represent the interests of shareholders. And if they don't, the shareholders can sue them and the directors get in trouble. Uh, So with a trust, if the trust violates from its fiduciary responsibility to their beneficiaries, their beneficiaries can sue. So there's a remedy there that protects the trust from being corrupted. Whether it would work 100% of the time, I don't know. But it's the best thing humans, as far as I can see, have invented in terms of a legal mechanism that can represent weak, sometimes not even living, beneficiaries. So. Will this subsidized income, or this, yeah, this subsidy, will it uh, have an effect on the value of the dollar?
1: Increase inflation, and will that um, decrease uh, defeat the purpose? Or
0: I see your point. Um, no, I don't think so. If I understand your question, um, first of all, I wouldn't call it a subsidy. It's it is legitimate income, property income, just the way rich people get income from property that they own, uh, and that nobody says, oh, if they get too much capital gains or dividends, that's going to cause inflation, I guess, is what you're arguing. Uh, There is, uh, I mean, what we're doing is we're recycling with this system, essentially, is we're recycling money within our economy. And uh, corporations are paying to do something that they now don't pay to do. They're they're getting a free ride. We're putting an end to that free ride. We're making corporations pay, and that money is coming to us, and then we spend it, and it goes back into the economy. Uh, it, uh, It does good. It actually stimulates the economy by sustaining consumer purchasing power, which is a real problem right now, because when people aren't earning a lot of labor income, they don't have purchasing power, and that hurts everybody. So it's actually a plus for the economy rather than a negative.
1: Okay, um, is there there's a number of people who want to get in the discussion. Could I have one, one more student uh, question before I open things up to uh, the, the <laughs> to the hardcore questions? Um, I'm just a little bit confused about how giving everyone equal pay from the dividends will um, decrease inequality if if everyone's getting the same amount of money from the trusts.
0: Well, hmm. if you have a job that pays you $30,000 a year, let's say, and you wind up getting $5,000 a year more. Uh, That makes you better off, a little bit better off, 15% better off, whatever the numbers are. Uh, And how does that affect inequality? Well, you're less, compared to somebody who's a millionaire, you're a little better off than you were before. Is that not obvious? (laughs) Oh, I see what you mean. So the millionaires, it's true, the millionaires are also getting an additional $5,000, let's say. Uh, Effectively, I mean, the millionaire isn't even going to notice that, right? Uh, If you're making $20,000, $30,000, you will notice that. It really makes a difference to the lower your income is, the more of a difference it makes. Uh, And if you you added up all the money from dividends, very little of it would go to the top 1%. 1% of it would go to the top 1%. And all the rest of it would go to other people. So it would, statistically speaking, it would reduce inequality. I mean, the goal isn't so much just to Statistically reduce inequality. The goal is to help people at the bottom and in the middle maintain some kind of decent standard of living in an age where wages are falling. That's the purpose. Um, mo- moving on to adults now, okay.
3: I'm sorry. <coughs> yeah, the, the older. T- for, the, for the gray hairs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'd like you to comment because I am I I like what you say in the great overview. But my concern is the trust, no matter how uh, disciplined it is in management, will likely get compromised by political pressures. And my example of that is uh, the largest trust that I know of, Calpers, and its uh, management by the uh, by the. Uh, uh, by the fund advisors, by the yeah. fund advisors, and, yeah. uh, and and I think that we see great trusts that hold the monies for the benefit of uh, of the public, and we don't see them actually working as effectively and as efficiently as they possibly can. I think Alpers is a good example. Essentially, uh, at at any moment, it could be bankrupt, uh, and. Uh, Uh, Hmm. how do you get over that in the system that we have that we enjoy today how do you get over the management uh, disciplines that uh, are going to get compromised by political pressures
0: well I I can't comment on CalPERS per se because I don't know enough about that Uh, and I can't guarantee either that there won't be compromises but all we can do is do is design the institutions to be as as loyal and trustworthy as they can possibly be? I mean, you, we're always dealing with human nature at the end of the day, but you know, uh, we we have to do better in terms of institutional design than the corporation. We have to have a different design than the corporation to manage these common assets, and I think we have to have a different design than. Democracy, uh, as we know it, you know, uh, political have the political system directly manage these common assets. That's what I'm searching for: is a kind of a commonwealth sector that is managed in a fiduciary way, not a profit-maximizing way, and not a political way, which is obviously going to be driven by. You know who donates the most and, and how can we get reelected the most by uh, so that 's the challenge it 's a, it's a big challenge, and i don 't know that we can solve it perfectly, but uh, we need to come up with some new institutional forms to manage this invisible Ocean of Commonwealth on behalf of future generations and all of us equally. we don't do that, we're sunk.
1: Okay, if you could give me 10 seconds, I would just like to thank uh, Todd and the whole AV crew. I'd like to thank Leonard Wallach and the whole CAPS crew for making this possible. And let's all thank uh, Peter Barnes. <laughs>